Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. What Einstein could not have predicted in the decades since was the development of powerful computers and powerful cameras that we can use to play the odds, to observe millions of stars night after night after night, analyse them in real time and make the one in a million chance actually possible on a nightly basis. Kia ora. Nau mai haere mai ki tō tātou au horuhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Cannon tēnei. This week, we look to the skies and encourage you to do the same. Later, Katie Gossett speaks to Manaki Fenua scientist Dr Fiona Carlswell about the New Zealand Garden Bird Survey that has taken place each winter since 2007. She finds out about what kind of trends the survey is showing and how we can all get involved. But first, I catch up with Dr Nick Rattenbury from the University of Auckland to talk about surveying the night skies to find exoplanets. So an exoplanet is pretty much defined as a planet going around usually a star, which is not our own sun. So, our solar system. You probably have your own mnemonic. The one I learned is, my very educated mother just summed up nine planets. But this is from a time when Pluto was included. Sorry, Pluto. So we have the Sun in the centre, and out from that we have Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars, all small rocky planets. Then Jupiter and Saturn, the gas giant planets, and Uranus and Neptune, the ice giant planets. But think of all the other stars in the sky. Might they have a planet orbiting them? Or a set of planets like ours? Any planet outside of our set is referred to as an exoplanet. For a very long time, we thought we were pretty special, with our star and its fabulous set of planets. But things started to change in the 90s. The first planets, first exoplanets found, I'm going to have to fact check this, but I believe it was about 1992. Eject and he's spot on. And it was a series of planets found going around not a star. The, the planets were found going around a thing called a pulsar, which is one of the possible endpoints of uh, a star's life. So pulsars are a remainder of dead stars, and they send out these regular emissions of electromagnetic radiation. Telescopes can pick up the intensity of the emissions each time these pulsars spin, and they are super regular. But if they have planets near them, then they disrupt the timing. So this is how those first exoplanets were found, from the disrupted pulsar timing. But what about the first exoplanets for a real, live star? Well, this came in 1995. And that was using a different technique called radial velocity. So in this time, we have an ordinary star emitting light, and some of the light from that star is absorbed by molecules in the star's outer atmosphere. You take light from any light source and you put it through a spectrograph, uh, a prism, 
usually, is a traditional idea that people have. It splits the light up into a spectrum, a rainbow. And starlight is no different. You take a light from the sun, you could put it through a spectrograph and get its spectrum. And you'll get a, generally you get a rainbow, but you'll also notice that there are some very dark lines in the spectrum. And those dark lines are called absorption lines. Those are gaps in the spectrum. And those gaps are caused by molecules high up in the star's atmosphere absorbing very specific colors of light, leaving a dark line. And the light coming from a star will be affected by how that star is moving. If it's moving away from us or towards us, you'll get a Doppler effect. Okay, this is real neat. And there are a whole heap of things you can find out about stars using spectroscopy. Like what elements they are made of and how hot they are. But right now we're going to focus on that Doppler effect. The classic example of this is if you are standing on the street and someone leans on the horn as they go past. You hear that change of pitch as the car goes past? That's a change in the wavelength of the sound because the car is moving. If a star is moving, you get a change of wavelength of the light. And that will shift its spectrum towards the red end of the rainbow or the blue end, depending on if it's moving towards or away. Now, you can have a planet going around a star, which is pulling the star ever so slightly backwards and forwards, according to our line of sight. So the Doppler effect on the absorption lines from the host star, they repeat. And they repeat cyclically. They go from shorter wavelength to longer wavelength and back again, depending on how fast the, the planet is pulling the star backwards uh, and forwards in its orbit compared to how we're seeing it. And so this is the radial velocity technique. This is how the first planets were found going around an ordinary star. I've also seen it called the wobble method, which I think I prefer. It's probably worth pointing out at this stage that finding exoplanets and confirming their existence, well, it's hard. Because of this, you can often see different numbers for how many exoplanets have been found. You need to gather a lot of observations and carefully analyze data and ideally confirm your candidate planet using a different detection technique. Yes, stars are easy to see, even distant ones, in the nighttime sky. But that is because they're really, really big and also really, really bright. Planets are small and don't give off light. Like you could fit about 1.3 million Earths inside the sun and it's kind of just a medium-sized star. That's why astronomers need to look for these little subtle clues of a planet being there, such as shifts in pulsar timing or the wobbling of stars. If the planet is big and close and not next to a super bright star, you might be able to detect it using direct imaging. That is, like, just taking a picture. Another method that has seen success is the transit method. You point your telescope at a star, then wait for a planet to pass in front of that star, and therefore block out some of the light. Like a solar eclipse. But it tends to produce false positives. Nick and his colleagues use something different again. It's called gravitational microlensing. Gravitational microlensing is the physical phenomenon which was predicted by Einstein in, as part of his general theory of relativity, where the mass of an object bends space-time and it deflects light. So there's a possibility where an object passing between you and a background star, for instance, bends the light from that background star in a way which is very similar to a lens. 
So in order to use a gravitational microlensing technique, you need a certain setup in the sky. Yes, that's right. So everything in the galaxy is in relative motion. So we're on Earth and we're going around the sun. The sun is going around the center of the galaxy and all the stars in the galaxy are going around the same common center. So everything is moving. And you can have, by chance, an alignment of stars. You can have a star, let's say, towards the center of the galaxy and us here on Earth lining up with another object which just happens to pass between that background star and us here on Earth. And when that happens, we have this effect called gravitational microlensing, where light from the background star, the star towards the center of the galaxy, gets magnified in a way very similar to a lens by the gravity of that foreground object, that, that object passing between us here on Earth and that star at the center of the galaxy. So we're pointing a giant telescope at that further out star. That's right. You have to play the odds. You have to look at millions of stars night after night, the same stars night after night after night, to make the odds work because the chances of having those three things lined up exactly enough for the microlensing effect to occur, one in a million, very, very unlikely. So you want to point your telescope towards millions of stars and you don't want to keep on pointing the telescope a million times into individual stars. What you want is a big telescope with a very wide field of view and you want to point that telescope to where you know there are lots and lots of stars. And so one of the places that you point the telescope is towards the center of our galaxy. So we have a number of fields of about 20 or so fields towards the center of the galaxy and each field is filled with millions and millions of stars. And we look at those same stars night after night after night after night. Most of those stars are just producing light at a very steady rate. So it's the same amount of light night after night after night after night. Nothing seems to change. Then what we look for is the start of a microlensing event. We, start to, we, we look for the beginning of uh, a change in the light coming from one of these stars, which up until then was just producing the same amount of light night after night. A completely steady, unchanging amount of starlight, one of those stars will suddenly seem to start increasing the amount of light it's producing. And we interpret that as the start of a microlensing event, the start of the gravitational effect of a foreground object passing between us and the star that we're looking at. And the gravitational effect is starting to amplify the light from the background star. It's starting to increase it. And then it keeps on increasing and keeps on increasing until it reaches a maximum. And that's when the background star, the foreground star and us are all almost as aligned as, you know, perfectly aligned. And then as things continue to move, they'll move out of alignment and the effect slowly fades back down until the star, the background star, just is back to where it was when it started. That is a microlensing event. If you then have a more complicated object, say a star with a couple of planets, mm -hmm. you have your giant telescope and also your smart computers that are able to detect not just an increase in light, but then a further little extra blip yes. of light increase. Exactly. Or Most microlensing events are just uh, simple, smooth, symmetric. And so the light appears to increase from the background star, reaches a maximum, and then fades back down to normal again. If you have an extra bit in the lens system, so the star which is passing between us and the background, then you see an extra gravitational effect. You will see an extra blip. 
the light curve, the measurement of light coming from the star is no longer symmetric from start to finish. There'll be an extra little glitch. And that extra little glitch could be interpreted as the existence of a planet going around the star, passing between us and the background star. New Zealand's hunt for exoplanets is called the MOA project, microlensing observations in astrophysics. Born, Nick tells me, of an original collaboration between US, New Zealand and Japanese scientists. Initially, they wanted to use the telescopes to look for gravitational signals of dark matter. But then it was determined that this wasn't going to be feasible because of the nature of dark matter. And there were a number of groups around the world which came to the same conclusion, going, all right, well, whatever dark matter is, we're not going to find it through microlensing. So the project pivoted and changed its uh, goals and went like, okay, you know what, we're going to start looking for planets. And so we changed the observation schedule, we changed how we use the telescopes so that we would become much more sensitive to discovering planets through gravitational microlensing. The telescopes they use are in Mount John Observatory, beside Lake Tekapo in the Mackenzie region of the South Island. We're using the 1.8-metre MOA-2 telescope. So this is a Japanese telescope. It was made by the Nishimura Corporation, and it was installed in New Zealand in the mid-2000s, and it had its first light, so its first collection of light in 2006. And that has been doing the bulk of the microlensing observations for us, for the MOA collaboration. And is that then ongoing? It's just taking pictures all of the time? Yes, yes. Every clear night we are observing the, our fields, looking for these uh, microlensing events. Since his first light in 2006, Nick tells me that New Zealand, through the MOA project, has identified dozens of exoplanets. Dozens of new planets that we didn't know existed before. How many exoplanets have been discovered so far? Exoplanets as a whole, we are well above 4,000. Most of those have been discovered through the radial velocity and the transit techniques. Uh, gravitational microlensing is, um, has always been something of a more niche planet discovery technique, partly because the physics is a little more complicated and analysing the data takes a bit more specialism. Also, gravitational microlensing probes a different part of the galaxy for, for extrasolar planets. So the radial velocity technique and the transit technique, uh, they tend to find planets, or well, they're only sensitive to planets in our neighbourhood, so a few hundred light years away. The gravitational microlensing technique is able to discover planets going around stars thousands of light years away. But gravitational microlensing isn't just good at finding planets way out. Critically, it's also good at finding smaller planets that the other techniques can miss. Gravitational microlensing, because of the way that physics works out, is able to discover very, very light mass planets. We're interested in these smaller mass planets because... Uh, the first discoveries of extrasolar planets were very large, gaseous planets. Think Jupiters and Saturns, because they were big. Mm -hmm. uh, big things are easy to find. <laughs> uh, but big planets aren't planets which are similar to the worlds that we see in our own solar system, which would you know, we associate with providing conditions suitable for life, like Earth. So the push has always been towards refining the exoplanet detection techniques so that they become more and more sensitive. So they're able to find lighter and lighter planets, planets which are less like these big gas giants that we see in our own solar system, and more like Earth's. So we want to be able to answer the question, 
how many planets are out there, but also what sort of planets are out there. Is it likely or not likely that a, a star would have one or more Earths going around it? Is it more or less likely that it will have one or more Jupiters going around it? Mm. And where are those planets going to be? Are they going to be close into the host star or are they going to be something more like our own solar system where we have a string of um, larger planets orbiting quite some distance away and then a little set of lighter planets orbiting closer in? This is, these are sort of questions that all the planet detection techniques are fueling. Mm. And so do we have an idea yet of whether other planetary systems look similar to ours or are there very different ones? Is there a wide variety or is, does there seem to be a kind of set formula for making a solar system? Uh, the answer is yes um, <laughs> to all of those questions, unfortunately. So uh, we are finding weird and we're finding stuff which looks strangely familiar. And that's, so that's why we keep looking for more and more yeah, planets. Absolutely. In the early days, the, like I mentioned, the, the, the planet detection techniques were all biased towards finding larger objects because it was just easier to find. And so all, then you come out with a model of, well, our solar system has big planets and smaller planets, but the other stars are just surrounded by big planets. Yeah, that's all and, that we can find. And that's, yeah, that's right. And so is that the answer? No. I mean, we mean like, well, we have to keep on looking. You have to improve your experiment. And you start to find, oh, we can now find smaller planets. And we can now find smaller planets orbiting further or closer away from where Earth does, for instance. And now we have a better picture of the diversity of exosolar planetary systems out there and we're more able to say well let me go to the planetary formation theorists and say okay well whatever planetary formation theory you come up with you're going to have to explain this this diversity that we're seeing mm. what's the future for gravitational microlensing? Uh, the future is space so the future is doing this from space space nick says is the future because you can avoid pesky things like daytime and clouds and also the atmosphere which distorts the starlight ever so slightly. So for many many years I and a number of astronomers have been uh, trying to make the case for a telescope that would do microlensing observations in space and this has uh, come to fruition in that we have a new space telescope which will be launching later this decade the Nancy Grace Roman Telescope it will be looking for evidence of dark energy and also looking for extrasolar planets using microlensing. So this will be the first space telescope mission uh, that will have as its primary research goal discovery of exoplanets through microlensing. NASA's Nancy Grace Roman Telescope will be equipped to use both the transit method and gravitational microlensing to look for exoplanets, of which it's predicted to find more than 100,000. Perhaps this large-scale planetary census will help us answer those questions of how our Sun and its eight planets, including the Earth, fit into the wider picture of possible planets. Thanks to Dr Nick Rattenbury. Now to the skies a bit closer to Earth. Every year, thousands of New Zealanders look to the skies, trees and bushes they can see from their backyard to help with the annual New Zealand Garden Bird Survey, one of New Zealand's largest citizen science projects. Every year in New Zealand, for one wintry week, a whole lot of people spend more time in their gardens, sometimes in their neighbours' gardens, not actually gardening, but listening and watching for the feathered creatures who share the space with us. 
It's the New Zealand Garden Bird Survey. This year it straddled the end of June and the start of July. And within that period, I ventured outside myself. Hi Katie. Hello. Do you want to come and have a walk around the garden? Yep, we'll do that. Right. That's Fiona Carswell, Chief Scientist at Manaki Whenua, Landcare Research. So is this part of your space as well? Yes, so when you do the survey, it's anything you can see. It doesn't strictly need to be in your very own garden, so you can claim neighbours' spaces as well. (laughs) (laughs) Property laws might say something about that. (laughs) I don't think the birds recognise the boundaries. Oh, you're lucky, you can hear Bellbird. Lovely. So eager to see some of these birds in action, we head up to Fiona's top deck, a good spot where we can sit down with our eyes trained on the kōwhai. Although, as Fiona says, the birds can be capricious. You sort of have a whole heap and then it goes quiet for a while. So the kōwhai is a real bellbird attractant, so it loves the nectar. It's in full bloom, so you get heaps of bellbirds coming there. But just not right now. <laughs> in the end, though, we don't have to wait very long. So in there now, you see the silver eye? So you'll get, usually they come as a group of birds. OK, and which birds have you noticed the most here? We mostly have sparrows and dunnock. We've had a lot of the silver eyes or um, tohoi some goldfinches. We do have bellbirds on that tree several times a day and blackbirds, so they would be the common things that we would see here. You mentioned there the silver eye or the toho. That is one of the birds that's actually declined a little bit in recent times, hasn't it? So this is the beauty of doing the survey every year is that you're getting a trend and what we found from last year is that It appears now that it's stable over the long period, so it definitely has been declining, but we're seeing signs of a very shallow increase in that, so we're a little bit more optimistic about that one than we were a couple of years ago. And things are looking positive for other native species. The picture for native birds is quite good from a garden perspective. So although we find kereru declining out in the back blocks and forests, they've actually had a 79, 80% increase in gardens over the last 10 years, which is great. Tui and piwakawaka are also increasing. And, and like I said, tohu seem to be stabilising, which is pretty good news. But these latest results are less promising for some of our introduced birds. So song thrush starlings are declining and miners are going up. So a bit perplexing why some of those exotics are declining as well. Has any further research been done to get a sense of why that's happening? We've tended to focus our research on native birds out in the bush so a lot of that is driven by predation but sometimes you get food scarcity in certain places as well but the predators are certainly a big cause for the native bird decline. We really don't know why the exotics specifically are declining in an urban context. 
It was this desire to know what was happening with more common birds that got the whole survey started back in 2007. I can see a fantail right now. Is it feeding? Yes, it's flitting around. Enter Dr Eric Spur, a research associate with Minaki Whenua. I didn't see what that was, but there was a bird just flew past the window. Now retired and on the phone to me, he's still keeping an eye on what's happening out the window. Not surprising really, considering his doctorate was on Adelie penguins, his postdoc on Ida ducks, and in fact, most of his life's work has revolved around the study of birds. I remember as just a little kid being intrigued by a dunnock that used to nest in a hedge beside our house and I thought, you know, what a wonderful secretive little bird it was. So yes, I've always had an interest in birds. And so 14 years ago, he decided to share that passion with the country. He launched what he called a hobby project, a survey based on an English model which would see people counting birds in their own gardens. There was no funding for any of this, so it was reliant on volunteers. And the reason for wanting to do that was that we knew a lot about the trends in some of our endangered birds. We knew that kiwi and kakako and kakapo were declining as a result of predators in New Zealand, but we didn't know what was happening with more common species such as kiriru and kaka and robins and tui and bellbirds and so on. So this was one way of trying to get a measure of what was happening. A small-scale trial run in 2006 got the citizen scientists on board and soon people of all ages were taking part. There was a rest home at Christchurch who took some of their residents to a park to do the survey. And one of the reports that came in said that one of the residents spotted two lovebirds. It was a a couple sitting on a park bench kissing. (laughs) He'd love to see more people taking part in this study, as the more individual surveys that are carried out, the greater the accuracy of the data. But he's happy to see the number of participants rise over the years. In fact, now that this year's survey has closed, the final tallies have been announced. There have been 6,812 surveys submitted. And as for the birds, 268,424 counted. And of those, 133 different species. So here we're in front of the Kofai, which you can see... This is a really early flowering... As we get down amongst the vegetation in Fiona's garden, she points out some of her own regular visitors. There's a silver eye in -hmm. the back there. There's a bellbird just flown in there. It's quite quiet. So they literally make a beeline for this tree. This might be the most popular bit of vegetation. It's definitely the most popular tree in the garden. This time of the year, the bellbird's our most charismatic visitor. And quite a loud call. We heard that before. Yes, they're quite territorial, so I think they like to tell the others whose turn it is at the Kofi tree. (laughs) (laughs) But what becomes of all this data now it's been collected? The data all get collated and analysed using a standard procedure to separate out the size of the groups seen, which species, which region... And a big shout out to Otago, that's the region that always has the most surveys per capita. Canterbury has quite a few as well. I guess there's a lot of trust involved in the sense that you have to rely upon the information people provide to you. 
The way the survey's designed, it's very tolerant of imperfect information. So we specifically ask people to just give us the most number of one species that they see at one time because then it means that you don't need to worry, is that the bird I just saw or is that a different one? Because you just go, well I can see two now so I'll just put two down. So it's designed to be quite robust. There are boxes that you can tick that say I I couldn't identify this species and we'll probably well the people doing the analysis will spot if someone saw 20 bellbirds at one time in a garden. It will get flagged as an outlier. It's information that Manaki Fenua would be hard-pressed to get without all the citizen scientists helping out. There's no way we could run a survey like this ourselves because of it being across the whole country. It's at that very small scale of being in individual gardens. And the beauty of it is that it's lovely. Wow. See that, just in that tree there. So... The fact that it's citizen science means that it can happen in that same week. If you had a whole lot of professional birders go out there and listen, you just couldn't get the geographic coverage within that time frame. Immersed in nature like this, another benefit of the survey is obvious. People do report feeling it's quite meditative. I I noticed myself, actually, I did it last weekend, and I thought, oh, there aren't birds out here, this may be a waste of time. But I, I sat outside, and I rugged up, and I watched the birds, and I was really cheered by how many I saw, and so I had quite a sense of optimism because of being forced to notice things for an hour. And I felt a lot calmer after that, and a lot of people describe that they feel more connected to nature, and they just enjoy taking that time out of a busy life for that hour. So we are doing this now within the traditional period when the survey is conducted each year. So do you like the fact or or how do you feel about the fact that as we sit here, you know, who knows how many other people around New Zealand literally in a garden at the moment counting birds? Yeah, I think that's neat that it's a social exercise, really, that, you know, we're sharing this experience. We're very grateful that people want to be part of this kaupapa and we hope people enjoy doing it and do feel optimistic about noticing the birds in their garden and what the plants are that the birds are coming to visit. I've certainly found it really enjoyable myself so I hope other people have that same experience. This episode was produced by Katie Gossett and me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Alex Harmer and Mark Chesterman. Tim Watkin is the executive producer you can follow Our Changing World for free on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on iHeart, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the show, please help spread the word by recommending it to friends or to family. Check out our website at rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld for photos, links, previous episodes, and to sign up to our newsletter. We are at RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter. Do get in touch. Come say hi. 
Don't forget to check out some of the other RNZ podcasts too under the Podcast and Series tab on the website. For example, the Short Story Stack. It's a set of short stories by independent and published writers from all over New Zealand, read out for you to enjoy in audio form. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai do wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.